1: Garden Church podcast.
2: We um, are in a, in a series, Darren's uh, wanted to take some time to, 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 to kind of flesh out, uh, what, are, what are we really after when we, when we say in Long Beach as in heaven? What do we mean when we pray for the kingdom to come? What, is it, what would it look like? And so, over the last three or four weeks, he's been just kind of unpacking aspects of, of the the kind of the marks or the culture of the kingdom, and I think that that um, hopefully has invited you and been somewhat enticing. And it's nothing nothing new. Uh, Ever since we started here uh, a decade ago, that has been a primary theme a primary driver, we've been kind of emphasizing the same things. If you showed up eight years ago, you heard us talk about radical generosity. You heard us talk about those kinds of dynamics, because that's really been kind of the DNA from the get-go, and you've heard us talk about, and from these same scriptures, what we'll talk about this morning, which is a little bit of a turn uh, uh, of, the, of the corner, and, and asking uh, even more explicitly, uh, what, what is, the, what is the, the kingdom like? And the language we have chosen to use is that it, it appears to us, it appears to us to be an upside-down kingdom. It appears to us to take what is little and what is undermined and what is insignificant and suggest that maybe we've got the whole thing backwards. And and in fact, uh, arguably, we could say that, in fact, the kingdom is the right-side-up kingdom. And we are the ones living in an upside-down kingdom. Uh, Anybody feel sometimes like you've just kind of woken up in an alternate universe that doesn't quite work the way everybody promised you that it was going to? That, That things feel more challenging, more difficult, more... Uh, uh, painful, perhaps, than it, it it was intended to. Relationships seem to be harder than they're supposed to be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, that's maybe significant of of the fact that you're you're living life upside down. And when the kingdom comes, it right sides up things. And the reason I like that image is because I think it echoes what the new testament and the old testament both suggest and that is that at the end of time when god has accomplished what he's up to in the world it will look very much like it looked like at the beginning of time that as we look at genesis 1 and 2 uh, we will get a glimpse of where we're going at the end and this is particularly the case in terms of the conversation we're having this morning and that is uh, relative to issues of power, what does the upside down kingdom that really is the right side up kingdom, what does that look like? What does power look like in that environment? How do we utilize our personal power, our positional power, when the kingdom comes? Because we're built for power, It's from we're created to be part of the image of God, which is a power position, if I can use that language. The problem is, is that we have been living in an upside down world and have learned power and power usage in exactly the opposite of what the the goal, the telos, the outcome that God is desiring to make is the case. So if we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we discover that power as the image of God is intended to elevate To empower others. The purpose, the goal of power is always to give it away. Always to empower others, right? Then in Genesis 3, when we disconnected ourselves from God as the defining reality of our soul and began the slow turn until we are now completely upside down, power became about uh, managing our insecurities and our fears, Power became about how do I leverage my position to accomplish, to keep me safe, to get, to acquire, so that I can micromanage or create, at least in my own head, the illusion of safety, the illusion of being in control. And so if we saw ourselves in the dominant position, in the superior position, we would use our power to dominate as a way of acquiring more. Right? If we see ourselves in the inferior position in one sense or another, we will use that same power, but we'll use it to manipulate. We'll use it to try and, accomplish, and always the goal is the same. We want to acquire more power so that sooner or later we can, we can wrestle our position upside down and we can now be the dominant ones. We can now get what we want done. We can now force others to comply to our will. And uh, every once in a while you get one of the prophets or you get Jesus saying, well, how's that working out for you? And the truth is, it's not working out well, is it? I mean, we are seeing the rise of bullying culture. What's that? That's about weakness, insecurity, and fear wanting to dominate, right? Uh, Or we see the rise of the honor-shame culture, whether it's in social media or other ways. We are seeing it increasingly play itself out on the political stage on the national scene, right, where, where, where uh, boasting is now uh, a, 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 a leveraging of positional power to acquire more, et cetera, et cetera, and all that and, and all it, all, all it goes down the road. Well, Jesus knew that these were going to be the issues. It's not new to us. We've been battling this ever since Genesis 3, which means that when he showed up on the earth— trying to model a different way. He was so out of touch with his times that they did not understand him. Even his disciples who spent three, three and a half years with him, listening to him talk, watching him model this, learning from him how life in the new kingdom that was announced, the kingdom of God is available for entry now through me, be believing, come on, step in. Even though they had heard that and watched him model it, still they, and when I say they, I mean we, struggled with what the heck is he talking about? Clearly, he's out of touch with how life actually works. Jesus, you don't understand. All we need is a bigger, stronger, more forceful power And then we'll make all of the rest of this riffraff get in line and it'll be just fine. And Jesus knows that when we're in charge, the world is no better than when we're not. He knows that when we elect our guy or when we get into positions or when we, you know, and we've we've proven this to ourselves over and over and over and over and over again. So maybe it's time for us to consider whether Jesus might actually know what he's talking about. Because he's counting on the power of loving service to change the world. So when you pray that his kingdom would come, do not be surprised if he works counter to how you think the kingdom is going to come. It will not come through forceful displays of more power. It will come in an upside-down fashion. Really? right-side-up fashion where those who are in power who actually could make things occur use all of their power to set others free have no interest whatsoever in dominating anyone so this is the strategy that he invites us into now it's important as we, we're gonna look at two texts this morning one from Mark chapter 10 which is where we'll begin uh, just to set this stage quickly, Jesus has um, been walking with his disciples now for almost three years, and, and they've been rigorously taking notes on everything he said and just attaboying him and saying, oh, Jesus, that's just so good, and, and, and having no intention whatsoever uh, ever to actually live the way he taught. It's much easier to write stuff down that Jesus says and talk about it than it is to actually do what he said. Right? Anybody else? Can I, can I get a witness? Yeah, we're, we're, we're all in the same boat. Um, and, 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 and please notice, now he has, by this time, he has told them three times how he is going to use his power. It sounds like this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put on trial and found guilty, and I will be executed on a cross as a criminal. That's what power looks like. And they treated him like he was one of the adults in a Charlie Brown car, uh, cartoon. He just, wow, people are talking. I'm sure there's something important, but I don't think you know what you're talking about. You're out of touch. You're nice, Jesus, but you're naive. That's not how things work. And so they pushed back each and every time because they wanted to leverage their connection with Jesus so that they could be advantaged. Because they knew if they were in charge, the world would be a much better place. Don't we all know that? So here they are on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus has told them three times, I'm going to be betrayed and put on trial and executed. On their way, this is the conversation. Verse 35, Mark 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. You know it's going sideways from there. (laughs) Well, Jesus said, what do you want me to do? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, the ten heard about this, and they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and said, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the gentiles lorded over them their high officials exercise authority over them but that's not how it is with you instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant whoever wants to be first must be slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This this text is challenging at a number of levels, and we've talked about it before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking it. It's just to uncover just a couple of the layers that we've already already mentioned. Um, Please notice that essentially the longing for positional power is rooted in pride. It's rooted in pride. Um, I, 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 want, I think more, either I think more highly of myself than I ought to think, which is the normal form of pride, or I think more lowly of myself, but pride uh, than I ought to think, which is the most damaging form of pride to the self, right? But both of them disagree about the fundamental reality of my my own existence. So Jesus looks at these guys. We want you to do, I mean, this is hilarious. Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is, this is a non sequitur, right? But anybody find yourself praying that prayer? In Jesus' response, you can see the gleam in his eye, the twinkle in his eye, says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Well, when you come into your glory, When you're fully revealed in your glory, we want to sit one on your right, one on your left. In other words, we want our share of your glory. Now, remember, three times he's told them what his glory looks like. It looks like betrayal. It looks like a trial. It looks like execution. It looks like burial. And you want to sit one on my right and one on my left. Where exactly in this scenario would you guys like to show up? Right. They haven't heard any of that and instead want him when he comes because they have a clear understanding of what it means for him to come in his glory. And it looks like when you drive these Romans out, when you reestablish Israel as the center of the universe, we want to be one on your right, one on your left, your choice, one on your left, one on your right. Doesn't matter to us. We're good either way. But we, wanna, we want to, in other words, we want to leverage your power, your authority to maximize ours so that we can tell other people what to do. Right? And of course, the other guys are ticked because they didn't get first. They're indignant. And you know they're indignant, not because they think James and John deserve it, but because those little brats got in there before they did. Right? I mean, this is, this is the, the motivation, because... Not just the two of them, but all of us want to leverage our connection with Jesus to personal gain. And Jesus will have none of it. Guys, do you, you don't know what you're asking. Um, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I was baptized? And as a demonstration of their abject ignorance, they say, of course. We can. We're, the, we're, we're your guys. Jesus, you and me, we're just like this. We're right there with you. Because they anticipated a certain kind of baptism, a certain kind of cup that involved perhaps swords, that involved perhaps conflict of some kind. They had no idea that the cup he was going to drink, the baptism with which he was going to be baptized, even though he had told them repeatedly, they still had no idea that it would involve destruction and loss, and devastating disappointment. Jesus knows it's the only way to turn the kingdom right side up. You've got to go into the depths of it and pull it right side out again. There's only one way to do that. And so he says, well, as it turns out, even if you don't know what you're talking about, You will be baptized with that baptism and you will drink that cup. But it's not up to me to say who sits one side right, one side left. It's for those for whom it has been already appointed. Which is probably one of those things that went right over their heads. It was like, which of those other guys got in here first? How did that happen? (laughs) But consider what he's actually saying. When, in the Gospel of Mark, is God most fully visible? When is he most clearly seen? When is his glory bleeding out? And it's on the cross. And who's on his right and his left? Two thieves for whom this privilege has been prepared. You really want to follow me? Jesus, seeing the others of us, anxious that James and John may have gotten their oar in before we had a chance to make our case, says to them, guys, and you can hear the snark. Anybody else have a snarky Jesus every once in a while? He just kind of, he, Guys. Guys, you, you, we, you, you know how this works. I mean, you're, you're so anxious about Rome. You're so anxious about the systems. Let's be clear on this. The, these rulers of the Gentiles, the people outside of covenant, the folks who don't know you, they use and leverage their positional power out of insecurity and fear to dominate one another, to exercise power. Anybody feel the victimization that he's identifying there? We see it in our own culture today, do we not? And Jesus said... In a massive sarcastic tone. But that's not the way it is with you. When in fact, they had just demonstrated that is the way it is with them. But he invites them into an upside down kingdom, really, a right side up kingdom. For you, he says, here's how this has got to work whoever wants to be great must descend into that greatness. He's gotta be a servant. In, in fact, he ups the ante, a slave of all. And please notice, he's not saying this as strategy, Namely, okay, if we do the small things for a little while, people will recognize our greatness and our capacity to be trusted and our responsibility, and then they'll leverage us to higher and higher levels of authority and power, and then we get to do, right? That's how it works, Jesus, right? We pay our dues, then we climb the ladder. No, 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 no. The ladder goes down, guys. There is no up escalator in the kingdom. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. You really want the kingdom to come? Really? Because that will mean that the ways you and I have learned to exercise power since we were children don't work and either, whether we do it in Jesus' name or not, it still doesn't work. I mean, candidly, when I read this, I'm just, uh, I, can't th- uh, I can only think of maybe one or two people in my lifetime that model this approach, right? Uh, whether, whether, and, and by the way, this has nothing to do with whatever your position is, right? If you're a CEO, you still have to be a servant of all. This is is the point that Jesus is saying. Your position in the upside-down kingdom, in the world that you live in, is irrelevant. It's what you do with that position that determines whether it's marked by pride and fear and anger and anxiety or whether it's marked by humility with openness and love. You get a choice, but if you want the kingdom to come, whatever place, whatever power you've got, you've got to use it for the sake of those who have no power. That's what you have to do, and I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe you were privileged, I wasn't, but to have a dad who used his personal power to enable and empower me to be who God called and created me, I didn't have that, and I didn't parent my boys that way. I parented my boys out of the same fear and insecurity, I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't about them emerging as the best, was whether people thought I was a good dad or not. In fact, embarrassing to say, I wanted people to think I was a good dad more than I wanted to actually be a good dad. Notice what's going on there, friends. That's pride. Pride is essentially competitive and comparative in its nature. And Jesus is saying, No, 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 that's not gonna work. If the outcome that you desire is the kingdom, you can't accomplish it any way other than the way of the kingdom. And that is through surrender and service. I would love to be able to report that having had this conversation with Jesus on the way into Jerusalem, these 12 said, oh, oh, of course, we get it now. Not so much. In fact, on the way into the Last Supper, on the way into dinner that Thursday night, guess what they were arguing about? Which of them was the greatest? So Jesus, having overheard this conversation, he asks him about it, and they're afraid to tell him. Pick up the next passage in John chapter 13, where he says... Just before Passover festival, verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Did you hear that? Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that he had come from God. Jesus knew that he was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Well then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my my hands and my head as well. (laughs) Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, although not every one of you. He knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not every one of them was clean. So when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? Um, I need to make a change. Uh, you'll notice in the screen there that that last word in the first line is for. In fact, the Greek underneath this is two. It's a different preposition. Do you know what I have done To you, something has happened in this foot washing. It's not for them, it's to them. Something has occurred. Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. Rightly so. That's who I am. Now, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Again, done to you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you blog about them. (laughs) No. Blessed if you do them. And here's the problem. This isn't rocket science. Everybody knows, having followed the example, how to wash somebody else's feet in this particular culture. In our culture, the translation is a little bit sticky, but what's fascinating about this, these guys on their way into dinner, remember, had had been arguing about which of them was the greatest Right? So consumed were they with their argument that they walked into dinner and looked sheepishly around. There was no slave boy. There was no lowest of the household servants available to wash their feet, and not a single one of them stepped into the role of the lowest because they were contending for the position of the highest. And Jesus had seen this. They would rather sit with dirty feet, and not just dirty in the sense of unclean, but dirty in the sense of whatever they traipsed in from the street. They would rather sit and eat with that than any one of them would step down from his high position for the sake of the others. Please notice... Jesus knew who he was. This is essential for the kind of service we're talking about. Jesus knew where he came from, and Jesus knew where he was going. He had not one split second of question about his value, worth, dignity, none of that. As a result, he could freely set it aside. The people who are most anxious about it are constantly trying to prove it. I am somebody, aren't I somebody? Please notice that I'm somebody. Aren't I somebody? Please, somebody tell me that I'm somebody. Jesus could care less what you thought of him because he knew where he came from, where he was going, and who he was. That's the condition of the kind of service that he invites us into, right? Jesus doesn't serve as a way of becoming someone. He serves because he already is someone, like the previous passage. You don't serve to become great. You serve because that's what great people do. That's the mark of the kingdom. Do, do, do you see? And, he invi- and, and, and these guys are just completely flabbergasted. Because, because you, you notice how John sets up the narrative. Whose feet did he wash? He washes Judas's feet that in moments, still damp, from the towel, will be walking his way in the streets of Jerusalem to betray him. Judas is among those whose feet Jesus washes. This is not turning out the way he thought it was going to. No wonder when he comes to Peter, anybody else identify with Peter? It's like, what the heck do you think you're doing? Because Peter's not stupid. Sometimes he acts as if he's not, you know, the driveway doesn't go all the way to the garage. But, 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 but Peter's not, he's not dense. He gets this because he knows who Jesus is and he knows more particularly who he is in relation to Jesus. Because while the other riff raff have been talking about who's the greatest, everybody knew who was the rock upon whom the church was built. I mean, everybody knew that. Right, and, and so Peter, Peter, Peter gets this because he knows what's happening. If I'm your disciple and you're washing my feet, this isn't going to end well for me. I'm going to have to follow your example, not just metaphorically, but literally humbling myself. No, you don't humble yourself if you're already humble. And that's the problem. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And part of this, I mean, give Peter credit. He he recognizes, no, but really? Because Peter's raised in the same culture of power that you and I are. If you have positional power, the last thing in the world you do is show weakness. The last thing in the world you do is demonstrate a willingness to not leverage your power to your personal outcomes. The last thing you do. And here he is, kneeling before him, washing his feet, drying them with the towel wrapped around his waist. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus, in probably one of the pivotal points in this dialogue, looks at him, friend, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. Do you catch what he's saying here? Peter, if you don't let me serve you, you have no part in me or my kingdom. This is what it looks like when the kingdom comes. You are served to death and life by Jesus. That's what it looks like. If you don't let him serve you, you have no part in him. And Peter, either deliberately understanding or misunderstanding, tries to laugh it off. Anybody else find yourself, you know that you made a mistake, you're not quite sure the mistake was that you made, so you say something and hope that it lands vaguely close to the getting you out of trouble. Well then, just, uh, why, I, my hand's in my head too. Bring it on. I want to be so part of you. Jesus, you and me, BFFs. <laughs> N- 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 no, nobody, nobody. You've already had a bath. You're good to go. Do you know what I've done to you? He says. And here's the problem. By the time this night was over, Peter will know what he's done to him. A few hours from now, a few hours from now, Jesus will be in a courtyard and his friend Peter will be warming himself by a fire. And a 16-year-old servant girl will say, aren't you, aren't you one of them? Aren't you his disciple? And Peter will say in one form or another, I thought I was. But no, I'm not. I haven't learned a thing from him. I haven't learned. Now, I think maybe Peter was in self-protection mode, but after all, what could a 16-year-old servant girl actually do to him? I think her question just pinned him to the wall of that moment when he realized he hasn't learned power from Jesus. He has gone, wanting to leverage Jesus to his personal thing. And here's the challenge on this, right? It's not difficult for us to know how this works itself out, right? You think of any relationship you're in, any power position you have. For example, in in that ancient Near Eastern culture, Paul says says to, to men, particularly who are married men, men, I want you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And just so you're clear on how that was, let me tell you, he laid his life down for her not so that he can dominate her, not so that she had to do what he told her to do, not so that she could play the submission card on her, but so that she was completely and utterly free to do whatever it was that she wanted to do, making it easy if she chose to submit. It's easy to submit to a dead man. And by the way, ladies, he said the same thing to you two verses earlier. Everybody submits to everybody in Christ. Everybody. Why? Because submission is nothing more than alignment in love. It's what it means to serve. That's what it means. That's what it means. And he invites us into this, not as a display of power, blah, 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 blah. but as, as, as a display of actual what real power looks like. Who do you think was in charge at Jesus' trial? Pilate, Caiaphas, the Roman soldiers? Mm. Please notice, whatever Jesus is calling us to does not mean he's a pushover. It doesn't mean he does whatever. In fact, what did he say to the two guys on the road in? No, no. It doesn't mean that you give everybody what they want. It doesn't mean people-pleasing. In fact, if you're people-pleasing, that's another form of weakness and insecurity, Right? And, and, and so, so it doesn't mean that. In fact, at his trial, here's Pilate, who's just getting terribly frustrated with him, the leading, most powerful man in Jesus' world, if you will. And Pilate says, don't you know that I have authority over you? And Jesus says, I love this. Just time out, buddy. Can we talk? You don't have any authority except my father gives it to you. Are we clear? Okay, now, what were you saying? I mean, it's just this crazy moment where Pilate just is firmly put in his place because Jesus knows his place. So whatever else it means, it's like, okay, what are your positions of power? What are the ways that you, here I am, I'm an old white guy. All three of those are power positions in our culture, all three of them. So how am I using those power positions? They're privileged positions. How do I use them? Do I use it to acquire more? To to get more position, or do I use it as an old guy? To raise up and empower and stand beside and make way for younger women and men. I'm white. In our culture, that still has positional power. What do I use? I I work with with my uh, students of various races and ethnicities. And folks, that I, want to, I might want to make way for them. I want them to know that they're completely and utterly safe, and I'm going to get out of the way and let them lead, and I'm going to follow them, and I'm going to cheer them on. I'm a male. And especially in the church world, that means I need to say to the women, you got a friend in me, but more than that, I'm going to make a way for you, then I'm going to get out of the way, woman, I want to see you lead. I'm going to support you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to cheer you on. I'm going to bless you. We're going to do this together. or We're not going to do it at all. Now, how am I doing? Eh. Still have moments of insecurity and fear, right? Still have moments where it's like, no, if everybody just did stuff my way, we'd be fine. No, no, no. You can't accomplish kingdom outcomes in non-kingdom ways. The only way to mark of greatness is descent. As it turns out, good news, plenty of room at the bottom. Let's pray.
1: Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.
3: stir up the fire of love in our hearts we need your spirit